0: Hey, this is Richard Blade, and I just want to say I really enjoyed being on What Difference Does It Make with Holly and David. So anytime you want a great podcast, look for Holly and Dave and What Difference Does It Make.
1: Hey, Holly.
2: Hey, Dave.
1: So what is going on? Today,
2: (laughs) today's a good day, Dave. How are you? How are you? And and by the way, welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy we have a guest this week. Who do we have? Holly.
2: Today we have Richard Blade. Our listeners will know him from K Rock primarily, but he's brought us all our favorite bands from the '80s, Depeche Mode in particular, Duran Duran, Tears for Fears, all of our favorites. But he's also become an author. He he started with a memoir. He wrote World in My Eyes a few years ago. I ate it up because he talked about all our favorite, you know, his interactions with all our favorite artists. And he's written a few other books, of novels, and he has now written a brand new book called Imposters. And it is based on a true story. And I am so excited to talk to him about it.
1: This new book, Imposters, is out now. And uh, let's get right into it on the What Difference Does It Make podcast.
0: Here we go. <laughs> ah,
1: look at that. All
0: right, I'll, okay. let me show you. Who was re- who was responsible for the delay? <laughs> there's one of the one oh. of the culprits. There.
1: Oh, look, he looks guilty. No,
0: she. She a little, looks gu- a little
1: Tashi there. <laughs> Tashi. The
0: other, the big one's lying outside. Chloe. Was, there's Tashi is twelve pounds and Chloe is eighty. So, uh, but they're bestest friends.
1: You said eighty pounds. What? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Does Chloe know that she's 80 she's pounds or does she feel like she's, you know, like 12 pounds, like a little
0: puppy. Like Well, the little one feels like she's a big dog. Yeah. It's always yeah. that way. Yeah. And the Thanks big you. one just is uh, just a good, good girl.
2: A <laughs> girl. You know, the little one can hear you say that.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, they know. <laughs> the little one's the really smart one. The big one is a big love puppy, but uh, dumb. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I mean that in the nicest it's sense. Yeah, of course. If, if there's go rounds in life, Toshi will come back as a human next, whereas <laughs> Chloe will come back as Toshi. You know what I mean? The levels Level. are Yeah, there's levels.
1: You got... Yeah, there's levels. Right?
0: This is how life that, works. That, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I I, don't know. I, <laughs> no,
2: don't. that's okay. We all have. You think about it in terms of yourself, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, what, what's oh, yeah, Richard no, Blade no, coming no. back as? I, I've got like 14 more times before I even Bill Gates, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> Is that right, Bill? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's for yours. Is? <laughs> yeah, that's my. That's where <laughs> mine is Yeah. What
1: are which team are you? Are you team um- Team Moderna? Team Moderna. All right. I'm. You know, okay. Team Pfizer. I think is. I uh, feel pretty good about that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm. I'm good with. You know, as uh, Dr. Fauci said, the best vaccine you're getting is the one that's going into your arm right now. <laughs> yeah. So I'm. I'm. I, I had very few side effects, and uh, I'm happy with it. So. We need to
2: use this as a
1: PSA. We are too. I know, right? Get oh. your
0: vaccine today.
1: So now you can get your jab, and then you can mm-hmm. walk into your uh, an independent bookstore and pick up Imposters, which is that's right, yeah. <laughs>
0: absolutely. Very <laughs> good. You news. know, and then uh, I, I've got one of the the editing copies of it here.
1: Oh, that's so, exciting.
0: Uh, there we go. That was uh, I've been through through it so many times, but it's uh, it's kind of cool. Uh, how how did you like? You know, I don't know if you managed to finish it, but how did you like it?
2: I'm in the middle. I'm reading it as fast as I possibly can, and I love it. But I thought that that it was a. I mean, it reads like a novel, obviously. But it's. Right. I mean, I'm maybe in the first hundred pages. Mike Evans' story.
0: Yeah, it is Mike's story. It, it really is. I mean, John is his best friend, but really, it was it was Mike who who drives the story, and it was Mike who I knew. So. I, I had to write it from his point of view. I knew him a lot better than John. It naturally flowed for me as as Mike's story because it was always him pushing it. Come on, Richard, please write it, please write it, you know, so I had to do it that way.
1: Yeah, that's what you laid out in chapter one is basically, it's, uh, it's actually how the story came to fruition. Uh, did you want to have that as chapter one? It seemed kind of, it, it was kind of weird to me in a way. It wasn't the introduction. This was the start of the book.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't want to do it as an introduction. I, I thought, you know, so many people had, particularly if if they grew up with K-Rock, uh, they, th- this would be a good in for them because they would recognize, if they'd read my first book, World in My Eyes, they know I got into K-Rock because a DJ called Mike Evans got into a fight with the program director, Freddie Snakeskin, and left the station. And so I took Mike's place. And over the years, normally when that would happen, Mike would hate me. In fact, he'd moved on and we became best friends. And over the years, uh, we stayed friends. And so I thought, why not get into the story that way? Let the listeners who grew up with me and grew up with Mike know where it came from. And that even roots it even more in reality because they remember those moments. They remember that you know, that radio station. And remember John Frost being on vacation, that kind of thing, and Doc on the Rock always going into the, you know, so uh, I wanted to root it in reality as much as I could. And I thought, you know, if I'm telling a true story, let's say where it came from. And so I opened it up that way.
2: And you said early on that it was supposed to be a film. You had pitched it as a film and it was actually greenlit. And then transitioning from film to book I mean you know, I mean it's a great idea, but
1: how did it happen? So you did have a you had a screenplay already written?
0: Yeah. Okay. And it was all I could do not to put the William Morris coverage in there. But in the William Morris coverage, they because they're breaking it down for agents who are too lazy to read the book, you know, <laughs> it's you know, they pay they have an intern that they pay a minimum amount of money to to read the screenplay and review it. In that one page review, it gives away a lot of spoilers. But it was all I could do not to put it in and do what, you know, they do with these uh, government reports, redact certain things, you know, and black it out. So uh, the surprise wouldn't be ruined because there's a number of surprises in the book. And I don't know where you are, Holly. I know you're only halfway through, so I don't want to give away one of the huge surprises that comes. So I wrote it as a screenplay. And then because I didn't know I could ever write a book back then. You know, this was uh, quite a while ago, and writing a book seemed almost impossible. So I thought, I'll write it as a screenplay because I know I can write screenplays. I'd written before for TV, and uh, had them things made, which was great. So uh, I put it down as a screenplay, and it got great reviews. But then when it got trashed, when uh, Zayden and Marin, uh, great people, great company, they did Chicago and a bunch of other films. When they were acquired by this other company and they literally, you know, just said, no, no, we want like silly things. And I was not in a silly point at that point in my life. I I just folded the screenplay, saved it, and put it with the other ones that have been successful and not successful and said, no, I'm just gonna just wait. And that's when, when, after World In My Eyes and SPQR became, you know, big successes for me, I thought, I'm, i'll write it as a book and that's how it came about and i i was lucky because i had the structure of the screenplay to follow mm-hmm. and all that research i'd done over the years
2: yeah so it's just the actual writing of it because it's a completely different format but i'm i'm yeah. glad and thank you for not spoiling it for me because i'm definitely going to get through <laughs> it this weekend and i'm totally loving it i can't wait for the, the surprises
0: well feel free to reach out to me when you get to certain pages you know, <laughs> Holy crap! I, I did not realize that because the boys also had that you know that moment where it was like I can't believe this. So
2: that's such a great even so far. I can see why you you would think it was a great story. Why you would want to to put it out there in whatever format. It's, well,
0: uh, you, Terry Nunn read it. I sent her a, an early draft of it, and she would call me and say are you kidding me? And I'm like, (laughs) no. And I'd I'd say, you're going to see some photographs in a, a few pages. And then she called back and she goes, this could never happen today. You know, I mean, they, they would be found out in five minutes because of the internet. And I said, yeah, I know there was no cell phones, remember, even back then, never mind the Internet. And uh, even for the police, the the FBI who are on their tail, you know, these guys had to go to pay phones (laughs) to call in. (laughs) It was it was a ridiculous time, really, in comparison to where we are today.
1: All right. So tell me about Mike Evans, because I have just read the first chapter, but already you can tell like Mike Evans is just insane. Possibly, right. he must be because he gets hired, he gets fired, he gets hired, he gets fired. Mm-hmm. He must. He's. I could tell he's someone extremely talented. This is someone that that Holly and I, of course, listened to early early uh, on K Rock, but obviously he gets on people's nerves. He, um, <laughs> or yeah. you know, he, he has a, sh- a short fuse. Or what? Tell me what. Tell me a little bit about Mike Evans.
0: Mike Evans is a very unique person, and I, the the perfect example. Of when, uh, of his personality, is, I was driving in for my Saturday shift, at K Rock. This is before I was full time. I'd just been hired as a, a weekender and the production director. And Mike Evans was still one half of Ramondo and Evans in the morning. A huge morning team, uh, on a station that had that big a signal. Mm-hmm. You know, and yet it was kicking Kiss FM's ass. You know, I mean, it was doing great. I am driving in and. What I hear on the radio blows me away and I wrote about it and world in my eyes. And in the audio version, I got Mike to recreate that moment. And what happened was the DJ on the air before me on the Saturday morning was a guy called Ian Whitcomb who was like a musician and liked big bands and that. And so they had him on K So It was completely different for Saturday morning. And Mike Evans came in on Ian's show. And Ian was like, wow, one of the morning guys is is visiting me. This is great. Mm-hmm. And uh, what he didn't know is Mike was getting ready to say goodbye to K-Rock because he'd just seen a memo that Freddie Snakeskin had written on uh, K-Rock letter paper. Today, the person that Freddie had written it about would own the radio station because of, you know, legal things. But back then it was, uh, it was the Wild West. And Freddie had written some things about Mike's, girlfriend who was leaving and going to kmet and they were not very respectful considering that she was female and all this kind of stuff and freddie had written this and posted it on official letter paper on all the doors in the station saying that she was not welcome to come back in and all this kind of stuff because nobody knew that she was secretly dating mike evans and so mike when mike saw this he called kmet and he said get me out of here I'll do anything you want on KMET. And they said, how about doing sports in the morning with uh, the morning show there? And he said, done, done deal. So he drove into K-Rock. That was on Friday night. He drove into K-Rock on the Saturday, visits Ian Whitcomb. And Ian goes, what can I do for you, Mike? And Mike goes, I just want to say hi to your listeners because they're the greatest people in the world. And he goes, great. So Mike leans over, puts his finger on the on button on the microphone so he can't be turned off. And he goes, to everyone listening to K-Rock right now, screw the station and screw Freddie Snakeskin because I'm going to be on KMET on Monday morning. (laughs) Hooyah! And Ian Whitcomb is dying. I'm driving in going, what the hell just happened to the morning show? So that was the kind of person Mike was. When he got a bug up his butt, he would just do it 150%. There was no holding him back.
1: That's the way it usually happens in
0: radio or, you know, like yeah.
1: they, they take you off immediately because they know you're going to, you're going to get to, you might just oh. say something.
0: Absolutely. When I, I gave my notice at K-Rock, I honestly thought even after 18 years, they would say, well, you know, that's great, Richard. Thanks for your service. Could you get your headphones and leave right now? I was shocked that they allowed me to work out the two months notice I mm-hmm. gave them. And uh, I mean, when I got home from, the station that night krista was waiting for me and she said you know how did it, how did it go honey was it okay i'm like yeah they want me to work until i i leave and she goes are you kidding <laughs> and i said no you're gonna have to do all the packing yourself And he
2: said, <laughs> that's so rare that is
1: real. oh it was yeah. so
0: rare yeah. but, you know mike was one side of it i was the other side of it because you know i mean we're very different personalities
1: it was surprise. That was another surprising thing for me, just reading this first chapter. Like, oh wow, you left. It was, it's been over twenty years since you yeah. left K Rock. I know. Um, the- it,
0: it's staggering. And <laughs> next year, I'll have been on Sirius XM longer than I was That's, on K Rock. Yeah, that. Which is, uh, I mean, it's one of the the weird things in in life that the older you get the faster time goes mm. you know when you're two years old summer is one eighth of your entire life experience when you're 50 years old it's one 200th yeah. of your life experience so when you're a kid summer lasts forever. as you get older yeah. each day just flies by and that's the it, life should be the other way around yeah because that's when you're yeah, work on that,
1: Richard. Come on, we got to, yeah. yeah, we got.
0: I mean, when you're a kid, you want time to go by quickly. You want to be older, you want to do this. When you're older, you want time to slow down, but it doesn't, it's like,
1: it's crazy. But okay, so you made the most of your downs. I mean, this 2020, was this when you were working on the book? Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I went back to it and uh, I actually even did more research on the book. Some of the things I wasn't able to pull off uh, when I was doing it back in 2004, 2005, because we didn't have, the internet wasn't as thorough as it is now. Now there's you know a million times more things on the internet. But even then I had to, I was on the phone with the FBI quite a bit. Uh, I kept saying to Krista, I got this horrible feeling that we're gonna go to bed at night and we're gonna wake up with flashlights in our faces <laughs> and it's gonna be the FBI going, why did you make all these calls? You know, why were you calling to Washington? Why were you calling to Los Angeles? And I'm like, yeah, just research. You know, and they're like, yeah, get out of bed, hands behind your head, you know. So I was able to bring a lot of things up to date, which I hadn't been able to do. So there's a lot more detail in the book.
2: When you decided to make the book, did you? how quickly were you able to find a publisher?
0: Well, you know, that was the thing. And, and let's go back again to my first book, World In My Eyes. I got approached by a publisher and they said, Put out World in My Eyes. And I said, Great. And after a little while, I became disillusioned with the publisher. And over the next year, I ran into uh, a lot of people I talked to about my book that had written autobiographies themselves. And I, I hate being that person who name drops, but here we go. Uh, Yuri Billy dropped
1: Terry Nunn. So go ahead. <laughs> uh,
0: Billy Idol, John Taylor. And Thomas Darby, like I ran into Thomas Darby on the stairs at Microsoft, where we're doing a—he was a big '80s concert we were doing—and he goes, Richard, Richard, and he pulls out a copy of *World in My Eyes*, my autobiography. He goes, will you sign it for me? And <laughs> I pull out my bag, a copy of *The Speed of Sound*, his autobiography, and I went, holy shit! I brought this for you to sign for me. <laughs> so here we are, two geeks signing it, and he goes. Uh, how's it going for you? And I said, it's it's actually going really well. And he goes, do you make any money from it? I said, yeah, first I made some money. It's slowing down right now. And I'm I'm not too sure, you know, I'm checking the sales on Amazon and they're doing, it's doing great. But I'm being told another thing by the publisher. And he goes, oh, welcome to the world of publishing. He said, I got my advance and that was it. Never saw another penny. So I asked Billy Idol, same thing. Asked John Taylor, Duran Duran, same thing. So I was like checking the sales on Amazon and they're doing incredibly well and I'm checking the checks I'm getting and they're like, are you kidding? Mm. So eventually I just said to the publisher, look, let's come to an end with our relationship here. Let me buy my own book back from you. If it's doing what you're saying it's doing, Mm. then the, the figure shouldn't be very high. He said, like, oh, I don't really want to sell it. And I said, oh, OK, well, in my contract, I have the rights to uh, hire a forensic accountant to go through all the sales. And he goes, OK, well, we, we could talk about selling it back to you. <laughs> yeah, and so a- I bought the rights back. It, and it's not specifically that publisher. It's, it's the business. And it's not just publishing. It's the entertainment business. That's why there's people that were in Star Wars that had a percentage of Star Wars that have not seen a penny because Star Wars is still in the red, which is, we all know is not true. I started looking into it, you know, and I got approached by a couple of other publishers because World of Myers had done so well. And I thought, you know, who's the biggest publisher in the world? It's not Simon and Schuster anymore. And it's not Dell or Penguin anymore. The biggest publisher is Amazon. Mm. Why not try self-publishing? And so I start researching that and they said, well, you need a fan base. (laughs) <laughs> Guess what? I'm lucky. I Check. got one. You know? I, I, it's, it, and I, you need a social media presence. I got one. And you need, you know, to get the word out. I'm on the radio. So I'm like, let me try this. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I'll. I'm, why not? So I wrote SPQR, which, again, I'd written as a screenplay. And I got incredible, incredible response from Hollywood for it. But because I was such a tiny cog in their wheel you know i'd only done a little tv writing Uh, i had this uh, meeting with ridley scott who'd done gladiator and he'd been looking to do a sequel to gladiator he's still talking about doing a sequel to gladiator so his company scott free met with me and they'd read spqr and they said we love this absolutely love it but it would cost 160 million dollars to make and as big as we are If we make this movie and it bombs, we've got no fallback. We can't say, oh, well, look at his track record. He'd done this movie and this movie and this movie. We'd be in a bad state. And the same, exactly the same from um, Jerry Bruckheimer. Exactly the same story. He said, you know, as, as good as our relationship is with Disney because of Pirates, hundred and sixty million dollars is a massive commitment because that means it's three hundred and twenty million when it comes to publicity and everything. Sure. So, you know, Disney is not going to fund an unknown writer. I, when I wrote SPQR, I went back to that screenplay and I thought that's the one I want to write next because I, when I write, I see it. I see it like sixteen nine, you know. That's you know the the format of a movie screen. So I wrote SPQR, and. Sure enough, it becomes a self-published hit on Amazon. It does incredibly well. So I thought, wow, okay, what's the next one I've written that wasn't made as a movie? And another one was Birthright, which I wrote as a a screenplay called Bloodline. And that's done not as well. And I'm surprised because everyone who's read Birthright, everyone has given it a five-star review Mm. and, and been blown away. And I've had so many emails from people going, when's the sequel coming? you know, because because I put it as the first in a series, because I, I like the character in it. They've all done well, and they've all made, you know, a little money for me and everything like that. And so I said to Mike, you know, what we have here is a true story. We've got to change some things about it unless, you know, to protect you and to protect the people that you actually imitated. So we have to change their names, but if this gets made into a, the movie that it should be or the series now, because when I wrote it, there was no streamers. When I wrote the original yeah. version of Imposters, there was no streaming. You know, Netflix and uh, Amazon and that didn't exist as streaming companies. Hulu, Disney Plus, mm-hmm. Paramount, that kind of thing didn't exist. I said to Mike, let's put this out ourselves through Amazon. It's easy to do. You've got the reach on your radio show. I got the reach on my radio show. And I've got a feeling that if people respond to it the way I think they are, we've got another shot to make it a movie or a TV streaming thing. And he said, okay, let's do it. And so that's long, long, long way of saying why it's self-published. And it's on Amazon. And self-publishing is not the, the stigma it used to be. You don't pay for it. You submit your book to Amazon. And they put it out. And you partner with them. I was just on the phone with Amazon yesterday because Amazon now has opened their publishing companies in Australia, and they, they'd reached out to me because I have a, a big following in Australia, and for some reason, I don't know why, um, but I'm, God bless them. You know, I love it. Every time I've been down there, I've loved it. When Imposters goes live, it goes live in America, the UK, Australia, Germany, Japan, South Africa, Italy, France. I mean, It's crazy. Whereas as a conventional publisher, it would be like, well, you know, because you're not Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, I'm going to, we'll try it in one market first. We'll try it in America and maybe we'll try it in the UK. Yeah. But with Amazon, it's like, no, nope, balls to the wall. We're everywhere. Yeah. And so it's it's great. And I would suggest to anyone who has wanted to write that book, do that research and, and think about putting it out with Amazon. Because it won't cost you anything as long as you're delivering A good product to them.
1: Richard Blade is talking up imposters, and uh, we're enjoying this. Someone's got to pay for this, so let's take a break and we will return.
2: Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest author, radio host, Richard Blade.
1: World in my eyes, have you thought about possibly making that uh, a, a movie? Who, who would play Richard Blade? And,
0: you know. Oh my gosh. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. it is an interesting story. I'm sure you've thought about it.
0: Well, I've been approached by it and, yeah. and I actually have two deals on it right now, but nothing is ever real in Hollywood yeah. until, it's, until you're watching it nothing is real yeah. you know every deal is a development deal you know and I, I feel so bad for people who are friends of mine that go hey richard i just signed a, a deal i got this i, I mean this is going to be made you know people who are in groups you know i'm, I'm going to be doing a special and i'm like oh god oh god but when i did long lost son for lifetime that was based on an early screenplay i'd written for all the right reasons was uh, it was called but that was too esoteric for lifetime they wanted actually to call it oh my god my son didn't die <laughs>
1: <Which> was like <laughs> yeah that's lifetime yeah let's give the end away, well, shall that's we? L-
0: <laughs> and um so in the end it was called long lost son that got sold after 10 years of just sitting there mm-hmm. and that was a story i could tell you about that it was a heartbreak story but anyway the it, it sat there and i sent it out as a writing sample And this girl, Rachel Rothman, calls me up and she goes, I loved it. And I said, great. You know, what would you like me to write? She goes, no, no, no. I loved it. I loved the sample. I want to do the movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, cool. That's great. She goes, I'm going to, and this was in her early days. Since then, she went on to uh, win Academy Awards for um, Dallas Buyers Club. And her husband, uh, the, the, the time that she won, he won the same time. They, they were nominated against each other. He did Wolf of Wall, Wall Street, oh, and she did Dallas Buyers Club. But um, mm-hmm. she said, uh, so, I, yeah, we're going to do it. I'm going to bring in some uh, investors and production companies. So I'm like, yeah, great. Okay. So I meet with these production companies, um, and they said, yeah, okay, we've got four four people who want to put the money to do it. And I'm like, okay, great, fine. And then uh, they said, yeah, and Lifetime's going to do it. And I'm like, "Yep, yeah, fine. <laughs> and I'm waiting for, but... Mm-hmm to happen and then um they bring in the production company and the uh, then they get back to me and they say okay it's set on the water and i said yeah and they said water's too expensive to shoot jaws you know that story can you rewrite the book but take it off the water i'm like excuse me a second um you do realize he's a sailor
1: oh. <laughs> who stages
0: his death and his son's death by drowning and they went, yeah. Can you rewrite that so that it's not set in the water? Put him on a building.
1: <laughs> yeah, have him
0: drown in a bathtub. Yeah, I thought, like, but the body can't be found. That's the whole thing. They're still alive, and eighteen years, sixteen years later, she discovers her son's alive, and he's eighteen now. but he's got his freedom of choice because he's not. He's. A, I'm like, yeah, fine. Take care of it. All right. So I, I sit and I think, okay, he's an outback explorer. And he stages his death in a snowstorm. And by the time uh, the, the, the thaw comes, bears have eaten the body. And, and, and that's what's happened. And they're like, great, write it. So I like, write that. And Welcome
1: and, to show bears. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah
0: and now we've gone from boats to ATVs and outbacks and all this kind of stuff and a plane and, and this, that, and the other. And they're like, perfect. This is fantastic. And then uh, I get the call. But... Mm. So, what they said, we've got the production company, yeah. They've got a studio in Turks and Caicos. Can you rewrite it uh. <laughs> so it's back in the water again, but it's not set in the Mediterranean? It's now in the Caribbean. And I went, Yeah, I can do that. That I can do because <laughs> I knew the Caribbean well, I've been lived there, and so uh, I rewrote it a third time, but still, not I hadn't got a dollar yet, and I still didn't think it was ever going to happen. And they said, All right. They're going into production and then they we're gonna do casting and we want you in on the casting. So I said, Okay, great, that's fantastic. So uh, uh we got uh, Gabrielle Lamois, we cast, and she got burn notice off it afterwards, mm-hmm. so that really helped her. And her ex-husband, we cast her ex-husband. Craig Schaefer played the guy who <laughs> was uh, who who stole the son, and then we had to look for the boy and we couldn't find the right kid. And then finally, this kid walks in, and I went, that's him! And the director said, that's the guy I was going to pick, too. And it was uh, yeah, yeah, Chase Crawford. <laughs> Hello! Chase Crawford. Wow. He got Gossip Girl. And, Chase Crawford. Uh, he's, he's one of the boys in The Deep. Uh, he, he plays The Deep in the, the series The Boys. And he was great in it. So they cast everything, and I'm still waiting for the bottom to drop out, right? And <laughs> Then they, we do a table read, and there was a character in it uh, on the island who is um, an old French guy who blocks the girl from advancing forward. He's he's an obstacle. You've always got to have obstacles for the heroes. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the table read, the uh, director says to me, he goes, I-, I need you to rewrite the French guy. He doesn't work for me. And it's this old French guy. I said, all right, I can rewrite. That's no, that's no problem. She goes, oh, I want you to make him 40. And I want you to make him handsome and a lech. And he's trying to sleep with her the whole time. And he's Mm. Australian. And I said, okay. And he goes, and I want you to play him. I went, well, God bless you for the handsome. And God bless you for the 40. And good day, mate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I rewrote it. But I still didn't think it was going to happen. And the two weeks into shooting and I get my plane tickets. And it wasn't until I was on the plane that I looked to Krista and I went, I think it's actually going to happen. And and it did, and it became Lifetime's seventh highest-rated movie ever. So I was, I was thrilled with it. And but, and
1: that's why the Australians love you. <laughs> but
0: for doing the worst Australian accent ever is Patrick the Lech. <laughs> and I didn't even get to sleep with her in the movie, so... But, uh, so, you know, but World in My Eyes has been uh, approached several times since it's come out to be made into a streaming situation. And uh, it's got two deals sitting on the table right now, but one to make a reality show, uh, like a documentary, oh. and the other one to make oh, okay. a scripted one, uh, you know, with actors and everything. So we'll see if, if, if they ever happen. Of course, the last time it happened, I had this meeting with a huge, huge producer, and we sat down. He took me out for dinner at Chateau Montmont, and he just finished uh, his second movie with The Rock. And he said, we're going to do a big thing. I'm taking it in. We're going to go to the streamers and everything. And I said, that's fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm so excited. And uh, he said, all right. He said, well, it's March 10th now. I'll get together you on like the 17th. And I said, okay, sure. March 12th comes yeah. lockdown, awesome. pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Everything shuts down. It was one of those things. That was, yeah. that was the ultimate... But,
1: <laughs> but yeah, but we have a you pandemic, have but that's, so you it's still pref- on the table,
0: right?
2: Do You have a preference for it for a documentary or a series.
0: I, I would, oh, no, I'd love to see it as a series and I'd love to, I, I'd love to see someone play me. I mean, that would be incredible to, to see that. <laughs> and one of the things I suggested to uh, that producer and to the one who's talking about it now is the fact that uh, I own all this footage from the 80s from my TV shows that I did, from Video One and Video Beat, of me with real Duran Duran and real Depeche Mode mm-hmm. and real Council. Berlin and real In Excess and real Spandau Ballet. And I said, you know, if ever we make this into a series, all this footage is available, and you would CGI out my face and CGI in the actor, leave real Duran Duran, so it's not guys playing Duran Duran, It's Duran Duran from 1984 with Poster Boys. You know, it's Michael Hutchins, who's no longer with us from In Excess, who's hanging with, you know, actor Richard Blade at L.A. Zoo at the kangaroo cage because the record company thought that was a good idea, you know.
1: Sure, Australians, yeah.
0: Put a kangaroo in the background. And it's it's real go-go's from back in the day and real bangles. And so uh, everyone's been super excited about that idea. Because suddenly it really it grounds it in reality because it's the real thing. It's really Depeche Mode from 1984. Were you the producer of this sh- of these shows? When I did these shows, um, like Video Beat, I created the show and produced it. After MV3 went off the air because MV3 was uh, my first TV show and I had I was just the host and brought in to do that. And I watched this show that was a massive hit in 50 cities go off the air because of (laughs) cocaine and i write about it in detail in world in my eyes there was a a moment when the psychedelic furs was standing on the stage waiting to play and it was baking hot in burbank and it was a converted laundry so the air conditioning was pumping and we had a hundred dancers there we had the the massive halogen lights on the stage long before led obviously and the bands there trying to look really kind of cool goth with long dark overcoats on and outside the temperatures 108 degrees and inside it's about 116 mm-hmm. now you know because the air conditioning is just failing and the uh, the stage manager says Richard go up tell him to roll tape and he's in the book one of the three names I changed for legal reasons so I, I go up to the owner of the show who's also the director of the show his office. And I walked in to tell him to roll tape. And I'm sure it's not accurate, but in my brain, the pile of Coke on his desk has gone from a lump to a small mountain in my mind. But sitting right next to it was a 38 as well, because we were, the Teamsters were coming by and repossessing the cameras and the crane and everything like that. So he had the gun and he had the Coke. And he goes, hey, Daddy, what, what do you want? And I said, uh called everyone, Daddy. I said, I, we need to roll tape, otherwise we're going to lose Richard Butler in the, the psychedelic furs. And he goes, well, do a line with me first. I go, Mike, I, I'm, I'm on the camera. I'm going to be hosting them. He goes, it'll make you better. And I said, I've, I've never done coke. And he goes, now's your chance. He gives me a $20 bill, and I went, rolled one. I said, Mike, roll tape. And he goes, I'll make you a deal, Daddy. Do a line, I'll roll tape. So go, Okay. Twice I did Coke in the 80s. That was the first time. And neither time, all it did, I'm naturally hyper. All it did was make me grind my back teeth. You know, it wasn't great or anything. So I I did the line and I said, Roll tape. And he said, I I want want you to do another line. And I went, I'm not doing it. I'm going down. I need you to roll tape. And he goes, Catch you. just no fun, are you, daddy? And I, I went down and they rolled tape and Psych First performed but uh, that was the last live performance we ever did on MV3. And we watched the whole show get repossessed as he failed to make the payments. And it was so sad. So after that, I thought I should create my own shows. I went in with my buddy, Peter Facer, who'd worked with me on MV3. And uh, we, we went into Channel 5 and we took in a, a demo that we shot and put together. And we showed it to um, the program director of Channel 5. Tribune Broadcasting and he looked at it and he goes, uh, okay, how would you like to uh, be the lead-in for Casey Kasem's Top 10 on Saturday? And I would do it every Saturday. I'll give you a year. And I went, uh, okay, sure, <laughs> that's great. We walked out and Peter and I looked at each other and said, did we just sell the show? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And he goes, oh my God. And that's what in Hollywood's called In the Room. And, and that is so rare that ever happens. Normally people go, you know, That's the greatest thing I have ever seen in my life. And you're fantastic. I I just can't wait to work with you. We will be calling you. And you go home and you go, great. Phone's not ringing. (laughs) Hello? Nobody's calling. But that Dave Simon bought it in the room and he lived up to his word. And it was fantastic. So I own the show. And then the the same with Video 1. Video 1, the replacement for MV3, Channel 9, went to two producers and said, you guys are real producers. We want to recreate MV3, but with Richard Blade and with you and and have it delivered. And so um, I got to own all that footage of the interview. So all these, and then we saved them. And Peter went on to produce. And when I went to um, Movie Time, which became E!, I brought Peter in. And so he became an independent producer. And over the years, he digitized, took all the tape and put it digital and cleaned it up. So we have all this existing footage. You know, it's a, a window into the 80s of all these incredible bands, George Michael, you know, is, and Andrew Ridgely are there, and ABC and Boy George. I mean, it's something that is very valuable.
2: Yeah. It's such a great idea, Ashley, because when you think about having to recreate, because everybody was somebody in yeah. World in My Eyes. So mm-hmm. to recreate that, it could almost be, if you're casting so many known entities.
0: Yeah. That it could be a
2: distraction, but to have the actual footage it makes it—it it takes it to a whole new
0: level.
1: But actually, the the one foot the one piece of footage I do want to see is a coked up Richard Blade introducing the psychedelic furs. Can I? Where can I find that?
0: <laughs> it's MV3, and right now let's go live with the psychedelic furs. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's Hulk Hogan. <laughs> but no, I, I actually controlled it, I think fairly well because I was always just naturally up, you know, and and coke just never did anything for me. Just it was seemed to. And I, I never smoked pot in the eighties because I was always doing gigs and and pot didn't do anything for me. At the times I smoked, it just made me sleepy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was like, Why? Well, I am I can sleep anyway. So I was fortunate. You know, a lot of people, as we know in the eighties got into into drugs and it I, I was just it just never appealed to me.
2: Probably so, your memories are much more vivid also.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I know. A lot <laughs> of times a lot of people I talk to about it and they go, Yeah, I, I guess I was there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: How did you get into writing? Because I, I, I mean, obviously your your passion was music, and and I, I had no idea. Again, in this first chapter, you mentioned that you you were writing for TV shows, which I had no idea that you were doing. And did you fall into this, or did you have a background from college, your college days, or you know, like early on? What what led into this?
0: Yes and no. Um, my brother was a writer. My brother um, actually got in the Guinness Book of Records in 1978 for being the highest paid first time writer of a book. But he always said to me, you should write because he wrote a series of books he wrote. And uh, one of them was made into a mini series uh, with Joan Collins and George Hamilton. That one was called Monte Carlo. Oh. And uh, that was a, a big hit. That's a good cover. Yeah, big, big hit for him. I, I'd always wanted to write and Stephen had always encouraged me to write. And so uh, I, started, I started writing, uh, but I didn't think I could write a book. I didn't know how to write a book, and I couldn't type, but I figured I could write better than American television. A lot of it was really crappy. Even the great shows tend to have what they call filler episodes, you know, because you know, mm-hmm. they're trying to do, they used to try to do 22 episodes a year, and um, of those 22 episodes, you've got, Eight good ones during the sweeps, and the rest are just like, ah, filler, you know, and we'll have him go through that door, and then you'll come back in through that door, and that'll be it. So I thought I can write that. And so I took some (laughs) screenplay courses and uh, bought some programs like Final Draft and started writing. And then I saw a show called uh, Seven Days, a time travel show where the hero can go back in time seven days to correct the problem, but he's a bit screwed up, and uh, his appearance always creates problems. And I thought to myself, I like the show. I love time travel. I love science fiction. There's a problem. If he's going back seven days to the same place, why isn't he running into himself? Because he's there. He was there. And so I I, I figured it out. I sat down and I thought, hang on a second. He's changing the timeline. There's an interdimensional timeline. And I wrote this whole story, how he does meet himself and then causes... All these waves to happen, and everything that he's already reversed comes back and happens again. And it's he has back to, to the future by everything in like a two-hour <laughs> special. So I write this out, and then I call up Paramount and said, "Can I speak to uh, Chris Crow, please? And uh, not not Cameron Crow, Christopher Crow, uh, who created it." And finally, I get through to him, and he said, "Okay, I'll tell you what," he said, "We'll go for lunch." And if what you've written makes sense, he said, because it is a gray area, we don't address it. If what you've written makes sense, I'll buy you lunch. And if it doesn't make sense, you buy me lunch. And I said, okay, done deal. Done deal. That sounds fair to me. And before we'd ordered, he'd uh, bought the idea. He said, this is great. And so I came on board as a consulting writer and writer for uh, For seven days, and then ended up writing their season finale and everything like that. And the season finale was uh, unfortunately a little bit of an echo. It was called the Cure, and it was about uh, a devastating pandemic that was called that where the cure for it was worse than the pandemic.
1: Although I still love the way you say the Cure. I still I still get excited when you say the Cure. (laughs) The Cure. cure.
0: (laughs) Well, I managed to to call it the Cure. And the uh, pharmaceutical company was called Depeche Pharmaceuticals. Oh, is that right? So I had to get two of my favorite bands on network.
1: First of all, getting in the front door, or getting in the door, getting a, a phone call actually accepted, What did these people know you? Because, I mean, I'm sure there's a million writers out there who are like, how did this guy get a hold of the producer?
0: Who do you know? I, I, well, I did use the, the Richard Blade thing, because it was oh, Paramount, the- and it was it was local. And I said to the secretary... You know, uh, I'm calling from K Rock and stuff like that uh, to get through the door. Most of the time, though, you know, the people aren't necessarily local. They're from New York or or London or whatever, and um, you can't get through the door. And the the doorkeepers, the gatekeepers, keep you out. And it's so annoying because you watch the crap that's coming out. Maybe you're too close to it and you think it's better than it is. But you know it's not worse than some of this awful stuff. But the gatekeepers won't help you through. And then I kind of have an agent, but he's pretty useless. Sorry for that. And and then uh, I had a great agent I'd been trying to get forever called John Ferreter. And he came on board after World in My Eyes, he contacted me and he said, I, I want to look after you and I want to represent you. And, and he was absolutely just focused, this guy. And I've been trying to work with him forever. He'd worked with William Morrison, a CAA. He was just great. And he used to have an old saying, you know, if you've got a problem that money can fix, it's not a problem. Well, guess what? He had a problem that money couldn't fix and he died right when world in my eyes was about to happen another one that was a huge butt, and I didn't feel bad for me at all I felt bad for him and his family Mm -hmm. because he was just such an open kind of guy and he was really caring he also uh, looked after Rodney and uh, Rodney Bingenheimer Mm -hmm. and he used to say you know I'm concerned about Rodney because Rodney's you know a frail kind of guy and he used to really go out on the limb for Rodney so uh, you know If there is anything in an afterlife, John Ferreter deserves a good place there because he actually is one of the good. He was one of the good guys. Mm. So but it's it's a weird business. It's (laughs) it's a weird business. And that's why, you know, God bless Jeff Bezos for taking at least on the publishing side for allowing you to do your own thing. And if it's good, it'll rise. And if it's not good, hey, guess what? Yeah. You know, it, it it wasn't what you thought it was.
1: You actually left everything though. And um in in 99 when you quit K-Rock, you're like I'm I'm opening up a dive shop. I'm retiring. Was that your yeah. that was your game plan. I'm done. Yeah.
0: That was always my game plan to go move to the Caribbean and teach diving. That was always what I wanted to do. I I grew up as a kid <laughs> in the water in England in the south. Uh, a little town called Torquay. And it's just nice beaches, no waves. You have to go to the north coast to get the waves, but it's got some scuba dive in there. But it's cold, and if you can see your hand there, it's a good day, you know. I mean, (laughs) it's green, and I always wanted warm water that I could actually see, you know. Hey, there's a boat over there, uh, and so uh, that was always my goal. And in '97, I bought a place in St. Martin, and uh, Krista was all up for it. She said, Let's do it, and I just quit everything. I, I thought, you know, why not? I want to do something different. My my biggest nightmare, there's a moment, Holly, I'm not giving anything away. Thank you. I refer to my nightmare. I put my words in Mike's brain at one point. And that's my nightmare was waking up and seeing white tiles above me and tubes coming out of my arm and pads on my chest and going, oh, my God, why didn't I do it when I was young? Why didn't I do it when I could? Because, you know, that's unfortunately how most of us are going to end up at one point, you know, or another. I didn't want to say, why didn't I? Because most of the things in life you regret are the things that you didn't do. You very rarely regret the things that you did do because at least you tried. And I thought, no, I just, I've done it. I, 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 I don't need to make a shitload of money i don't need to you know work 24/7 i would like to work i, I you know I, I do enjoy working i have to say that but i tend to find i'm working for myself now i do my serious show and my jack fm show here in in the studio mm-hmm. and i write when i want and i'm with my dogs and my wife and i'm i'm as happy as i could be that was always my dream my dream was somewhere warm somewhere sunny that i can dive and after my mum died and Krista's mom died, fairly close together, and Krista's mom, very unexpectedly, she was 47. Ooh. She died two days before our wedding. I know. Best of times, yeah. worst of times. Yeah. You know, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him you've made a plan. Okay? <laughs> so uh, I figured, why not come back? And Krista said, what are we going to do? I said, well, we'll find something. We'll do it. You know, I'm not scared you know life you only go around once you got to you got to live mm. i find that the harder i work and the more i i, I put my nose to the grindstone the, the luckier i get but there's still a lot of refusals you know i mean it boggles my brain that uh, certain things you have you you can't get past the gatekeepers because i would i would love to see you know birth birthright would be a huge movie birth I mean, spqr would be like Gladiator too. It w- really would be. It would be a massive, massive movie, but you, j- you just can't get made. But you can't dwell on it. You say, "Well, I, I, I can only do what I can do."
2: Yeah. And you have all these other projects. Do you have a preference? Do you, do you enjoy the book writing process?
0: I am really enjoying the book writing process now because it's, <laughs> it's done. <laughs> because, because I see it. Yeah. Because I and I have actually, I'll show you something here. I finished the book after this already so after imposters wow what this is the next book
3: ghosts (laughs) of the
0: congo okay i like writing epics i should write small little things because that was they're so much easier to get made you know you write the big ones and they go oh yes it's great but you've got a nuclear submarine you've got satellites and you've got cruise (laughs) missiles all in the same scene and they're targeting people who are going to doing a halo jump you realize that's $12 million. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I just like reading it, you know? Yeah, so I, I that's good. And, and then my next one is going to be, uh, again, based on a true story of something that happened in 1944, right around the corner from where I grew up. Don't want to say any more about it, but it's, <laughs> it's a good story. But, I, you know, I figured in a love story and all this kind of stuff for it. Yeah, I, I, I just like it because I get yeah. to see the movie before anybody else. You know? Right. Yeah, it's all it. in like, your head. And the weird thing is when you write it characters do things that you didn't know they were going to do mm. you have it planned but then they do things i, I could obviously that couldn't happen with uh, imposters because that was a true story but with spqr and with birthright people d- did things i didn't know they were going to do Stephen King says that, you know, and he's a billion times more successful and a better writer than I am. But he says that he finds that his characters will lead him in a different direction. And it's so fascinating that they do that. It's almost like there is a different dimension where they are living. When I was writing SPQR, the last... Third of the book is the most epic battle. And it's, it's a, a very uh, one sided battle. It's, it's 42 people against 3,000, but these 42 ah. are winning. And I created a situation in it where I couldn't see how the 3,000 could win. Sure. And they've got to at least look like they're winning for the suspense. Every night I'd be walking with the dogs going, Honey, I, I, I think I've created a, I've put them in. An invincible situation. And um, then it came to me. Literally, I was lying in bed, and I was like, oh, my God. And I got up, and I wrote down the notes. This is what they're going to do. And this changes everything. And uh, it it was so exciting. I just couldn't wait. When you solve these puzzles. to, to, To write it and to see what happened, you know. And the whole end of the book changed as well. The last chapter did not exist in the screenplay. So this moment, even though I wrote it, I get goosebumps when I turn the page mm-hmm. and go from, you know, chapter 41, because it's a big book, to chapter 42. And that f- those first words on chapter 42 send a chill down my spine because I can only oh. imagine in a movie theater everyone thinking the film's over, it's done, it was a great movie, I loved it, it was great. And then, ah! <laughs> you know, that, that, that moment. So, and and that's, that's what makes me want to write. My wife's a voracious reader as well, so uh, as you know, she's the first one who reads through my stuff, and I, I say uh-huh. what do you think, and like for example, I was doing a gig when she read SBQR, and I didn't tell her what's going, what happened, and she literally texted me, going, "OMG the <laughs> and." you know the twist the one yeah. and she was so shocked when i got home she, it was like one thirty in the morning from a gig and she was awake because she wanted to talk to me about it so it that's that's always exciting when that you, you write something that people can respond to you know and i i just you know I, I i treasure that i treasure on the radio you know when people would say to me back in the day on k-rock you know thank you for Playing that song when, you know, I, I lost my mom or something, it meant something to me. To be able to touch someone, even in a small way, I think is so important because, you know, we're all just humans. We're all the same, you know, which is, you know, what, what breaks your heart when you see how people interact with each other sometimes. It's like, wait, wait a minute, we're, we're all the same, you know. I mean, maybe there's some cosmic joke where we all have to live everybody's life imagine that that you know if reincarnation existed and i have no philosophy about uh, extra lives but i often think about it you know imagine if reincarnation existed but it exists now yeah. and you have to live everybody's life once how would that change how we treat other people
2: yeah. we would have much different sensibility yeah. for sure yeah yeah
1: often thoughts yeah. travel should be traveling should be mandatory for everyone like you need yeah. to experience different cultures at the very least you know to to learn about how how people live like not, not everyone lives the same life you lead you know
0: and no they don't you, yeah. you know some it, it's i'm sh-
1: i'm yeah. actually i'm I'm sure i, I was going to say um during your studies you must have you're different. I think you and Mike Evans are probably about the same age or it's the same era, but you know,
0: Mike, Mike is uh, seven years older than
1: me. Okay. But I mean, seven but just years comparing years. his life as a kid to yours, it must've been like, oh, wow. This was this, was his life and yours similar in, in ways or.
0: No, very, very yeah. different. Uh, you know, and also, I mean, he lived at a time in California that I often fantasize about. I would think, you know, to be a kid. california in the 60s when the surf culture was exploding and the music was happening Mm. that must have been amazing it was amazing in england uh to be around in the 60s yeah uh, right (laughs) i
1: would think the same for you like i want to live where you were living at the time
0: (laughs) to me the 60s and the 80s have a lot in common because Mm. in the 80s every day there was a new band came on the scene you had to learn the name tears for fears what's a tears for fears a flock of seagulls. I never heard of a Wang Chung. You know, it was that every day. And it was the same in the 60s. You know, once the Beatles opened the door, there was no stopping. You know, it was suddenly The Who and Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Beach Boys and The Doors and all these incredible bands just exploded onto the scene.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that must have been fun to kind of dig into his life in the 60s and kind of live live for him live like him kind of in a way as you're writing it down
0: absolutely you know yeah. and for mike you know he came from a a veteran's family his his father had fought in two wars he fought in world war ii in europe and then you we know, was sent to the forgotten war to korea which was a just a devastating nightmare for those poor veterans who who went there and that's where he uh, his father was badly injured at a place called chosen Res- reservoir which was a a huge Marine battle and um, where they were trapped. And so, you know, Mike grew up in a veteran's family, but he grew up in the South Bay and he got to work with some of the greatest names in radio in history you know he he actually was Casey Kasem's intern you know and then what and his lead in the case you know, the guy who was on before Casey Kasem was Bob Eubanks so Mike would go with Bob Eubanks to the Beatles show because Bob Eubanks actually put the Beatles on for KRLA yeah. he mortgaged his house right. for their third show to be able to afford to put them into Dodger Stadium and Mike's there hanging with the Beatles <laughs> I mean I, wow i mean <laughs> just crazy i mean my two favorite bands in the world beatles and depeche mode i mean crazy
1: well you got to hang out with depeche mode at the rose bowl right so that's kind oh, of yeah similar i mean
0: yeah i mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean th- i'm i'm blessed to have martin gore's phone number in here you know we, we text each other <laughs> what is that number like by that? the way i need oh, to yeah right? <laughs> yeah have yeah, got mean, some questions for him yeah yeah but to think about the b be- i sat outside this morning and I got up early and I sat outside, and there was, it was a little cloudy, and then the sun was starting to break through the cloud. And I just pulled up on my phone. Here comes the sun from the Beatles, and I played that as the sun was coming through. And I thought, to quote *Handmaid's Tale*, "Blessed day," you know. It just it just felt Praise incredible, be. you know, for the sun <laughs> to be coming and and to be able to experience that. And, I, and when I was walking the dogs today, I was I just couldn't. I just heard George Harrison's voice just looping through my mind. You know, Mm -hmm. here comes the sun, little darling. You know, it's just incredible. You know, blows my mind. It is wonderful. Um,
2: We're lucky to live here too. I hear, I hear when I'm driving to Santa Monica. I, I live on the West Side. I hear California dreaming.
0: Oh. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, you know holly i i grew up listening to that song and that's one of the reasons that i'm in, in california is that right because i would be walking through the streets of oxford on a freezing winter day and i i was here about you know all, all the leaves are green but the skies are gray and and, and all the leaves are brown sorry and the skies yeah. are gray and and that was oxford for me uh, yeah. and it was a, a great time but the winters were brutal uh having grown up on the coast in england where the the channel kind of mediates the temperature a little bit because the water won't let it get too cold in oxford though if you got any wind it would blow through you and you'd freeze and i thought i i I gotta gotta go to uh, somewhere warm like california and and then when i learned to scuba dive at raf bryce norton which is right around the corner from oxford i would the planes would be taking off these huge military transports and i would I would put myself on them in my mind. I'm going, yeah, I'm I'm flying to California. So I relate to you being on the West side and and hearing that song because it was, those were the songs that made me want to go to California.
2: I know that our intent today was to talk about imposters, which is great, which I'm very excited about, but there's so much more we could have covered. Maybe we can have you back (laughs) and talk about, I, I read world in my eyes as soon as it was released. I, you know, Ate it up and about. Yeah.
0: did you enjoy oh, it
2: yeah yeah i mean this is a talk about a sweet spot in every, yeah. and everything i listened to you so i knew you know i knew uh, you know all about you but all the artists i mean this is this is our life this is our youth yeah. this was we grew up with all of it and we're we're passionate about it obviously about the music and about k-rock so yes it was a perfect i thought it was wonderful and if i could have a sequel or five that would be just
0: <laughs> you know what awesome. I, I, i've been i'm going to write the sequel to it oh, obviously nice. but uh, i i don't want it i was it was such a passion project for me when i got into world in my eyes mm. that i didn't want to just hurry one out i want to wait and uh, i don't want a, a great conclusion on it as well you know I, i'd love to have a, a a moment at the end that is is like wow and so yeah uh, when it when i do write it I, I want it to be as good as the first. And I, mm-hmm. I find that hard to see in my brain because there were, I, I knew that there were moments in world in my eyes that people would relate to that publishers wouldn't because when I, I got approached a lot about writing a book and so many of them, I said, Oh, it's great. You know, I'm going to write about Europe and they're "Oh, no, 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 just write about Depeche mode. And I'm like, but other people can write about Depeche mode and Duran Duran better than I can because they'll just research it. That's what they do. And they'll write a story about Depeche Mode or Duran And I said, I, I want to write my story. Oh, no, no one gives a shit about yours. And that's I was told that so many times, yeah. so many times. And after World of Myers came out, the rewarding thing was hearing people say, I loved your stories about DJing in Europe, about traveling around, about taxi and, and girls like that. And how it was you were turned down and you got to meet Michael Jackson. People loved yeah. that part. And I, I just had a feeling people would like that because it was, it's real. It, it's, you know, it was, you know, Mein Kampf, my struggle, you know, <laughs> and, uh, which is really weird. You mentioning Hitler. as part of that, I was,
1: I did not know? expect Hitler to be mentioned on this podcast, <laughs> no, but, to be honest. I
0: did go across Europe. So I was, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. but, no, but we've, everyone has a struggle everybody does Uh, you know and and I thought that was so important to tell it you know because it's not I didn't just suddenly turn up at K-Rock and everything became sunny and roses you know it everyone has that struggle that thing that they have to get past in life and many people quit before the struggle's over or they just suddenly get super lucky you know I interviewed UB40 last week for the Sirius XM podcast and I said how tough was it and they went you know, we always got lucky. You know, we we sent our demo in, and the first record company we sent it to signed us. And I said, and your first single was a huge hit. And they went, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was a top five single, and every single after that was a hit for us. And I was like, okay, where was the struggle? Right, we didn't right. have a struggle. You know, we actually tried to sink our career a lot of times, but we couldn't. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god! Next time round, I'm gonna yeah. be UB40." <laughs> yeah,
1: right. I mean, you obviously you still have more life to live, and so there the the story continues. And you know, we we won't see the sequel for a while because you're going to accomplish more things. And it's uh, you know, as the struggle continues, there's going to be some greater reward. I look forward
0: well, to let's hearing. Let's hope so. I mean, I I would one of the things I've always wanted to see in my life is to be sitting next to Mike Evans and the room to go dark and then or, you know, some famous theme, whether it's, you know, or the MGM lion, <laughs> which would be, you know, obviously the Amazon lion now and Jeff Bezos. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. And that's his story to be told. I've said to him a, a hundred times, mm. Mike, I want to be in the movie theater with you for the for that opening night. And I, I hope that that happens, you know, because we lost one of the two of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want Mike to be around and me to be around when it, when it finally does come to the screen. Cause I think people will, will absolutely love it. You know, I think it will be a, a, a great realization for his life.
2: Well, I will email you as I get through it this weekend, as I well, hit upon yeah. the, the surprises. I
0: will start <laughs> hitting it. Yeah. I
1: yeah, get I, into I, it. I
0: think you're really, uh, that there'll be a couple of moments where you will, uh, You'll go, oh, that's what Richard was covering up, you know. And because uh, I don't, I hate it—the spoilers. You know, well, Chris and I'll be driving, and Howard, uh, Howard Stern will be talking, and you'll go. This is one of Chris's shows. I've never watched it. But I know it's meant to be great. he will go, yeah. I was just watching the latest episode of This Is Us, and I couldn't believe it. my wife like jumps over me and hits the radio. off, You know,
2: no spoilers, no spoilers.
0: And so I'm, I'm big into uh, no spoilers. Thank you. There you go. That's yeah, it's true. Well, you
2: brought us to Pesh Mode, so thank you oh. for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: hey, but my pleasure. You know, I mean, you know, to uh, be allowed to use World in My Eyes as, as the title when Martin said yes, I mean, that, that was just a thrill. And I agree with Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys that the perfect pop single is Enjoy the Silence. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that to me is just all I ever wanted, all I ever needed is here in my arms. Uh-huh. I mean, oh. That's so great. You know, in just so few words, Martin mm-hmm. Gore can capture that moment, you know, that love, that feel. You know, that's mm-hmm. the, the great thing in life to be able to write something short that means so much to people.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. Because of your relationship with Depeche Mode, we always felt closer to them. I mean, you were kind of like the conduit, you know, your passion for new music that, you know, we grew up listening to. It, it resonated with us and we, you know, we felt close to you, like just hearing your voice. It's like, I mean, it's like the real down steel. It's Casey Case and that's who you are for us.
0: That means a lot to me. And, and if, if Depeche is your love, just know that when Dave Garn walked off the stage at the Rose Bowl, he cried because that concert meant so much to him. It wasn't the fact that it was the highest grossing concert in history at the time, and he was putting a shitload of money in his pocket. He didn't care about that. He cared that the concert had worked because he wanted it to, and he actually just cried. you know. And I was backstage when he was crying, and it was an amazing moment. It's nice that people feel that about people that deserve to be yeah. Admired, you know, because he's, you know, the band are not there just, just to put money in their pocket. They're there to play music and make people feel good, because that's what it's all about. In imposters yeah. there's actually kind of a line about that, oh, yeah. which, w- without giving anything <laughs> away, where someone says to Mike, at one point, they say to them, every time we're singing, someone's going to hear you, and it takes you takes them back to a special moment in their life. And that's what being on stage is all about. You and I aren't saving lives or putting out fires. We're up there and all we can do is make people feel good about themselves. And that's what it's about, you know, we're not firemen. You know, we're just people to hopefully make you smile.
1: That's a good note to end on. I love that, thank you.
2: All of that is why we do this. Yeah, and
1: I. well, that was cool we got to talk to richard blade
2: i could have spoken to him there were so many other things that i wanted to talk to him about i mean he's such an interesting guy and he's you know done so much he's experienced a lot
1: seems like uh, just a, a great guy it was it was actually nice to, to actually talk to him and see someone was very genuine but, uh, but talented as well like has this talent that i really wasn't that familiar with so Um, I was just familiar, of course, with him on KROQ. Those that didn't hear him on KROQ in Los Angeles can now hear him on SiriusXM. Great episode, Holly. Good job. I'm sure, Holly, there's going to be, because we talked for a long time with Richard, there's going to be many little snippets that we can find on YouTube. Is that correct?
2: Oh, we are going to put a lot. Anything that we take out of the episode itself, you're going to find it on YouTube. So check out our YouTube channel. Just give a search for... What Difference does it Make Podcasts, and you will find us.
1: Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thank you. And uh, until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later.
2: Over and out.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.